Today, um, our, we're going to continue uh, in John. Uh, Scott's been preaching his way through John, and so we'll just continue. And we have a little matter to deal with uh, today, uh, the cross, the cross, um, John chapter 19. So would you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 19? We'll read it in a minute. I just want to introduce this by saying the title of the sermon is uh, A Vision of Jesus on the Cross. And I, I got that idea from Scott, who's been portraying visions or pictures or images of Jesus as John presents those images to us in his gospel. And today it'll be Jesus on the cross. Uh, and let me say there is no more essential vision to a believer than to see Jesus Christ rightly on the cross and to respond in faith to that. And I'm gonna even dig down more deeply on what I even mean by the word cross. But first, the most important thing we're gonna do today is read the word of God. So would you stand as I read from John chapter 19. So Pilate delivered Jesus over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I've written, I've written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross, of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, in another scripture, it says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Thank you. You may be seated. I'm sorry, I'm a bit of a science uh, geek. I am a scientist. And when we talk in my discipline, one of the first things we do in any talk is give a bunch of definitions. So I'm sorry, I'm gonna start in this sort of geeky fashion and I'm gonna give you some definitions, okay? I think that may be helpful. Let me clarify something. What I mean by the word cross today. Well, it's obvious, isn't it? At one level, the cross refers to a physical structure, a wooden structure, which was used as a means 
of execution of criminals. And that's one way I'll use the word cross. Another way we'll use the word cross is referring to the crucifixion of Jesus, the act by which Jesus was died for our sins on the cross. But more commonly, this is how I'm going to use the word cross. I'm going to refer to the cross as the completed plan of God, which encompasses the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. One completed work, which the Bible often refers to as the cross. So when I talk about looking to Jesus on the cross, let me be very clear. We're not leaving Jesus on the cross. Jesus is not on the cross. So today is, what, October 30th. It's about 11 in the morning. Where's Jesus Christ right now? Where is he? He's at the right hand of the Father on high. Absolutely. That's where he is. He's interceding for us. And through the Holy Spirit, he is in the hearts of every believer. He is among us. He's among his people. Jesus Christ is here. He's not on a cross. I want to be really clear. And let me offer one final definition for the cross. And I'm going to read it. The cross is, and again, I'm talking about big picture cross, the completed. The cross is the ultimate fulfillment of the sovereign plan of God determined before the beginning of time to manifest his glory, love, righteousness, wisdom, and grace by becoming a human being and dying in our place and redeeming all who put their faith in him. That's what the cross is. So if we know nothing else today, we know that this is the completed plan of God Almighty. Now, I'm gonna go a little fast today and I'm gonna call this kind of, you know, Redemption Road. We're gonna, we're gonna go on Redemption Road today. And if you know the Bible well, I'm gonna refer to a whole lot of other scriptures and think of those like little side paths that lead off of Redemption Road. And I hope if you know the Bible, you're going to know exactly what I'm saying. And they're going to bless you. And you're going to, you know, it's going to fit together to give us a better picture, a fuller picture, a clearer picture of who Jesus Christ is. If you don't know the Bible, I don't want you to get overwhelmed. So think of it like this. Think that you're on a wonderful journey. And we're going to have a tour guide today. And we're going to be talking about all these little side paths and instead of going off on those side paths, I want you to just think to yourself, wow, that sounds wonderful. I'd love to visit that place. And maybe on your own, you will go visit that place because we're going to cover a lot of scriptures today. The cross, we can't overemphasize how important the cross is. And so I'm going to have four points today. This is how I like to make my outlines. I'm going to answer four questions. Why? Why the cross? Why do we need a picture of Jesus on the cross? What? What is the picture of Jesus on the cross? Who is Jesus on the cross? When? I'm going to explain that later. It seems a little weird. Well, 2,000 years ago, right? And then finally, how? How can we get a picture of Jesus on the cross? Why do we need an accurate picture of Jesus on the cross? The cross perfectly reconciles to irreconcilable qualities of God, his holiness and his love. If you read the Bible, if you read, start in Genesis and you read through until the times of Jesus, there's a growing tension. First of all, there's the love of God. God dearly loves his people. And the story of the Bible is God pursuing them all the way back in the garden when he said, where are you? When we forsook him, where are you? I'm looking for you. And that's really the plot of the whole Bible. God pursuing his people because of his unfathomable, wonderful love. But there's a problem. God is also perfectly holy, blindingly righteous and glorious. And he can't even look on sin, the Bible says, because he's so perfect. And really there's a t growing tension as you read the biblical text between those two qualities. How is God going to bring these two things together? They seems like God can't possibly love us if we're, if, we're un, if, we're, if we're unrighteous, but he can't judge us if he's loved. What is God to do? God's in a bind. Well, our God can do anything. And in the cross, he has done everything. 
He has perfectly fulfilled his unfathomable love, and he has perfectly fulfilled his righteousness brought together in the cross. It is not possible to overemphasize the cross. The writers of the New Testament said it in this way. I'm going to read a couple of texts. Stay in, in, in John 19, by the way. Stay on Redemption Road. If, if I take you on some side texts, you don't need to follow. 1 Corinthians 2.2, Paul said, When I came to you, brothers, I decided to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. What did he mean by that? Is it, we wouldn't say anything but Christ Jesus and him crucified. Hey, what about this text in Isaiah, Paul? Christ Jesus and him crucified. Hey, where's the bathroom? Christ Jesus and him crucified. It's not a mantra. The point is, he had a lot of other things to say, I'm sure. I'm sure he opened the Bible and they read about it. But compared to everything else, everything else pales in comparison to Christ Jesus and him crucified. Galatians 6.14 says this, Far be it from me that I should boast in anything except to boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how important this is to me individually. And finally, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. This is going to define the gospel. We use the word gospel around here. Sorry, the scientist in me, the geek in me, got to define things. What is the gospel? We use the word all the time, and Scott defines it regularly. It is the good news about the cross. And so Paul says this to the Corinthians. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. For I delivered to you as of first importance. Get ready. He's about to tell you the most important part of the message. And let me say this. When we talk about the gospel, we can, we, there's a lot of aspects of the gospel. There's a lot of things we can say. We can maybe add some things to what he's about to say, but we can never subtract. We can say more than 1 Corinthians 1 through 4 when we preach the gospel. We can never say less than this right here. What I received as a first importance was Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. If we do not proclaim this, we are not proclaiming the gospel. We can't overemphasize the cross. Isn't it strange then, if you think about it, I mean, okay, this was a longer text than usual. Scott's usually like two words, right? Or maybe, maybe a verse, I guess, for his sermons. Um, I had 21 verses. That's a pretty big text for a sermon. But when I'm telling you that the cross is the single most important event in the history of the universe, you would think that John would have given more than 21 verses for it. I mean, go back and read the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. That's 13 chapters. I mean, the book of Leviticus is 27 chapters of ceremonial laws about ritual cleansings and things like that. And you only got 21 verses to talk about the cross? The reason John does this is when we are, and we're going to look at the details, the, the, just the, the pictures that he gives us of the crucifixion. It doesn't go into a lot of gory details. You know, sometimes I was tempted to do that. I'm a doctor. You know, I was going to, maybe I'll preach on the medical side of the cross. The problem is, he doesn't spend really any time on that. And I don't know that I'd be true to the gospel message if I did that. Maybe in a Sunday school someday. Um, but he spends so little time because he's drawing in these short verses. He's drawing on the whole Bible. You see, the Bible has all these stories. They're like loose threads. And a lot of them are left hanging. A lot of the, a lot, there's a lot of holes in the plot when you come to the end of the Old Testament, what happens to the, to the prophets? Like they've, they've ceased, there's no more prophecy. And besides that, people didn't listen to them. What, what happens to them? What about the kings? Their line seems to have failed and faded. And I think there's maybe some descendants of David somewhere scattered around, but we don't even know where they are. And what about the priests? What about the priests? We don't even have a temple to sacrifice anymore. How can our sins be forgiven? Every institution, even the nation of Israel, 
has failed. There's, there's holes in the plot. There's loose threads. And, it, and it's wonderful, the redemptive work of God. But there's something missing. And what John's going to do in his story of the cross is he's going to take all of those threads and gather them together and tie them up, perfectly tied in the cross, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. So he's going to touch on all these stories in the Bible and how what they do ultimately is they're pointing to Jesus. Everything is coming to Jesus. Now, we don't want to get weird. We can pick any random text in the Bible and say, I'm going to find Jesus there. We don't have to force it. The Bible makes the connections for us. So I'm going to mention three ways in which he does that. Pictures, prophecies, and proclamations. So some pictures. Do we get pictures from the Old Testament of what's happening on the cross? You better believe it. Let's start with verse 2. Jesus, and we didn't read that, by the way, but we, last week we read that, they, that the Roman soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on the head of Jesus. Well, the crown was there to emphasize that Jesus was the king, the king of kings. And sure, they did it in mockery. They did it as a means of torture to hurt him. They did it to deride Jesus. But God allowed that to happen to really show that he is the king of kings. And even the writing that Pilate sarcastically put up there, King Jesus Christ, king of, uh, king of the Jews, God was saying, yeah, you meant it for evil, but I meant it for good. I meant it to proclaim the truth. Jesus is the king. And why thorns? Where do, where do thorns, where's the picture of thorns given to us in the Bible? Well, at the very beginning, in Genesis 3, at the so-called curse, when God and when man, Adam and Eve, had sinned and been deceived by the serpent, God stands up and delivers a judgment. He says, because of what you did, the earth is cursed. Thorns and thistles, it will grow for you. You see, the thorn is a literal, physically painful thing. Hey, if you've ever cleared the brush and run into the thorns, you know that they hurt but more than that, a thorn is the symbol of the curse. It, is, it encompasses, that, that one symbol encompasses all the hurts and the pangs and the suffering and the brokenness and the badness of this world. And Jesus took it all on himself as a crown of thorns. Verse 17 is the cross itself. Jesus went out bearing his cross. Do we get a picture of the cross in the Old Testament? You better believe we do. Jesus himself gave it to us. In John, back in John chapter 3, when he's talking to Nicodemus, he makes reference to something that happened in the book of Numbers, chapter 21, when he's talking to Nicodemus. Let me set, I'm not going to go on, this is a side road. We're not going to be able to go down that very long. God's people had been delivered, the Israelites had been delivered from their slavery in Egypt. They were going through the wilderness. They started complaining, whining against God, and God, as a judgment, sent fiery serpents. I don't really know what that means. There's a lot of debates about that, whatever that means. He sent fiery serpents into the camp to punish them. And when you're bitten, you might die. But our merciful God provided a way out. He said to Moses, when they, once they had repented, say, God, what do we do? Help us. God gave them something to help them. He said, make a serpent, a snake, out of bronze and put it on a pole. And whoever has been bitten by a fiery serpent, whoever's in need of salvation, doesn't have to perish. They can look to, just look at, but the word is a very strong word. They're not just glancing. They are looking, help me, God, help me. I'm looking to you. I'm trusting in your work of salvation. And Jesus said, that bronze serpent, that was given as a sign of salvation to the people was really about me. This is what he told Nicodemus. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And you know the next verse? For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believed in him would not perish but have eternal life. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. The details of the story draw on scripture to give us a fuller, this is a short picture of Jesus we're given by John, but John's pulling everything he can into this picture of Christ so that we see him rightly as the savior of the world. Hyssop, verse 29. I mean, why would John include the detail of the kind of stick they used to hold the sponge up with sour wine to the lips of Jesus? When scripture's perfect, this is the word of God. And often when it gives a detail, there's a meaning behind the detail. Why hyssop? Well, that takes us back to Exodus chapter 12, the original Passover. Remember that story? God was getting ready to deliver his people from Egypt. He pronounced judgment on the gods of Egypt and the Egyptians. And he pronounced that the angel of death, the the destroyer would come and kill every firstborn son. What do you do? Because how's the angel gonna know the difference what if, what, if, what if I fall under that condemnation? But God provided, again, God provides a way for his people, those who have faith in him. How did you express your faith in that day? God said, take a lamb, a Passover lamb. Choose a lamb, it has to be without blemish, and sacrifice that lamb. Let its blood fall, and then take a branch of hyssop. Wipe it in the blood, and then Basically, make the sign of the cross over your door frame with hyssop. And when, when the angel sees the blood of the lamb that was slain, this Passover lamb, I'll pass over and spare your lives. Hyssop is used through rituals in the book of Leviticus. It is a sign of purification. And when David sinned against God terribly with Bathsheba, in Psalm 51, as he repented, he said, cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be clean. He was looking to Jesus for his salvation. What else? The water and the blood. In in verse 34, the water and the blood. You know, I missed how important that detail was when I was growing up reading this story. I didn't appreciate it. But if we were in the first century reading this, a, a sword, I mean, a spear pierced the side of Jesus and water and blood came out. Oh, we would get this. Oh, Jesus is a priest. He's not just a king, he's a priest because blood was how we atoned for sin in the Old Testament. Blood had to be spilled because God was rightly wrathful against sin because of his perfect, blinding holiness and righteousness. Blood had to be spilled for sin to be paid for, for God's wrath to be turned away. And water, the, rit- the rituals in the, which the priests, I mean, I've been to Israel. You go into a mikvah. You go into a bath before you go anywhere. You're cleansed with water. Jesus cleansed with water to show that he was a priest. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from your wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure save from wrath and make me pure. You you propitiate my sin, you appease the wrath of God and you purify me as well, the rock of ages. And then there's the body and the blood of Jesus. If we were standing at the cross, we wouldn't have trouble visualizing that. We would be assaulted with the horror of the imagery. And Jesus has just finished a meal, a ritual meal, an important meal, which is commemorating the Passover. It's a Passover meal. And he's compared his body to the bread, which is his body to be broken like this bread. And he's compared his blood to the wine. And by the way, that wine in that meal, the cup of salvation or the cup of redemption, symbolizes the blood of the Passover lamb. Do you know that scholars believe that at the moment Jesus was dying on the cross, God-fearing people were in the temple sacrificing the Passover lambs to God in that moment because that whole image, you know, in, in, here in the South, we're into sort of reenactments. 
reenactments. God is into pre-enactments, pre-enactments, real events that take place in time and history. I'm not saying this is all symbolic or mythical. These are real events that took place so that God would point to Jesus Christ, so that we would embrace him by faith, so that we would appreciate, we would get a right vision of him and rightly receive him into our hearts. And then there are prophecies. These are some pictures, but they're prophecies um, that point to Jesus very explicitly, going way back. What's the first prophecy of the Bible? Genesis chapter 3. Right there at the curse when God said, you know, curse is the ground because of you thorns and thistles. He also predicts there's going to be a long war between you people and this serpent. And the seed of the woman will one day crush the serpent's head. But he will suffer too. His heel will be bruised. This is a picture of Christ. And if we stood there at the cross, it would be very obvious that his heel was bruised. As his feet were nailed to the cross, how do you die on a cross? You might die from blood loss, but mainly you die by what scholars call asphyxiation. I'm gonna call it respiratory failure, I'm sorry. You die of respiratory failure because as you hang on the cross, it's very difficult to breathe as you're hanging there. Try it sometime, hold, your, hold on to some ropes and try, don't, don't hang on a cross, but maybe grab some ropes. How hard it is to breathe when you're, arm, when you're suspended by your arms. And so in order to breathe, you had to thrust yourself upward against the rod of metal that was struck through your feet, bruising over and over with every agonizing breath, bruising your heel. This was a prophecy about Jesus on the cross. Isaiah 53, our responsive reading, gives us a beautiful picture of the suffering servant of God. It says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we're healed. Like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Remember the words of Pilate? You aren't gonna say anything? Don't you know I have power over you? Power to save you or crucify you? No, you don't. No, you don't. The only person calm on the day of, of the crucifixion was Jesus. Everybody else is freaking out. Romans, Jewish people, disciples, there's only one person who's calm. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Psalm 22 is a prophecy of the death of Jesus, written 1,000 years before Jesus died on the cross. And it perfectly portrays vividly the exact moment. It says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? the words of Jesus on the cross as unthinkably the Father for the first time in all of eternity did not look lovingly, tenderly into the face of his beloved Son, but looked away unthinkable because we cannot fathom the love that exists between the Father and the Son in the Holy Spirit. But maybe we can because he's drawing us into his family. He has so gently shown us that. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A lot of people die on crosses. And if we focus only on the physical suffering of Jesus, we miss the fact that this is the greatest unthinkable suffering that he went through, to bear the sins of the world and to not see the face of his father for a moment. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. A prophecy fulfilled in verses 23 and 24 of John 19. What about Psalm 69? The thing I love about this one is, you know, John tells us the facts, but he doesn't tell us what's going on in Jesus's heart or his mind. But, but Jesus is a prophet, and Jesus is God, and through his Holy Spirit, he inspired 
the writing of the Old Testament. So in a sense, Jesus is the author of the Psalms. And he wrote through his Holy Spirit, inspiring the psalmist a thousand years before about what he would experience on the cross in Psalm 69. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. And that would be verses 28 through 30 of John 19. What about the bones? Not one of his bones would be broken. John makes a big deal about that. Why? Because Psalm 34 says this. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. A picture of Jesus, pointing to Jesus. Oh, and by the way, the Passover lamb that you were supposed to sacrifice, one of the commands said this, you shall not break any of its bones. Zechariah 12 says this, God, God saying this to the prophet, they will look on me, on him whom they have pierced. Well, how could God be pierced? That doesn't make any sense. If you're just reading a prophecy, they'll look on me, him whom they have pierced. They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly as one weeps for a firstborn. There are pictures, there are prophecies, and there are proclamations. John the Baptist. Jesus comes walking along one day and he says, hey, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Well, wait a minute. How do lambs take away the sins of the world? Oh, his, his listeners knew. They did it by having their throats cut and by bleeding and by offering themselves in the place of another person. That's a, that's a proclamation of the divinity and the role of Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. John 10, Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. John 12, he said, and I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus proclaimed and prophesied because he's not just a king and a priest, he is a prophet. John 15, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. And Luke chapter nine, could Jesus have been any more overt and explicit when he proclaimed this? The son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Oh, and by the way, you wanna know how he's gonna be killed? He tells you in the next verse. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. We cannot make too big a deal about the cross, but we can get it wrong. We can have a wrong view of what Jesus did and who Jesus was on the cross. Let me give you some wrong views. Usually what we're doing in that situation is we're creating Jesus in our image, the way we want him to be instead of the way he is. We can see Jesus as a victim. That's common, isn't it? We heard that it was an unjust trial last week. Jesus is a victim. The only problem with that is when Jesus said, it is finished, he wasn't whining. He wasn't saying, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. It's over. I failed. No, it was a cry of victory. Jesus is not a victim. He's a victor. He said, to tell us, die. It is finished. Not I'm finished. The work of God is completed. This glorious work that God has proclaimed since before the beginning of time. I've done it. I have paid the price. I've redeemed my people. I have won the fight. And to use the Greek word, to tetelestai, the word that was written on your bill when you'd finished, it is paid in full, stamped on there, stamped in red. I have paid the price for sinful humanity. Jesus was not a victim. Jesus was not a good teacher. Okay, he was a great teacher. But when we say this, I think usually we're saying it to diminish who Jesus was. He's a good teacher, he's a good teacher. There's a lot of good teachers. Jesus was another good teacher. Um, and I think usually the people who say that aren't really particularly interested in the teaching of Jesus. It's kind of interesting. 
Um, Jesus was not just a good teacher because Jesus came to die, right? And Jesus didn't become a man simply to relate better to us. Jesus became a man because God cannot die. But a man can die. And Jesus came to die. And that's why he had to become a man. He had to drink the bitter cup of the curse, all the sin, all the brokenness, all the grotesqueness of this world down to the last bitter drop. Jesus, we can see him as a threat or a problem to solve. You know, that was the, the way the Jewish authorities saw Jesus. And initially, Pilate saw him as a threat. Um, he's a problem. And I, make no mistake, the cross is a threat to my self-righteousness and your self-righteousness. Jesus, when he says, take up your cross daily and follow me, that's kind of threatening to my desire to kind of do my own thing and live my own life free from God. But when Jesus makes those demands on us, he offers us more than we could ever have in his generosity. Jesus can be seen as a solution to a problem. Pilate saw him that way. Oh, I got an idea. I can win over the people. I, I can get some brownie points with these religious people. I'll just kill him. I don't want to do it. I know it's not right, but yeah, I guess, I guess it's probably worth it to, to appease the crowd. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll kind of keep things under control. Today, we see Jesus as a solution to our problem. Sometimes, when we say, if you get Jesus, you get, insert whatever it is. You get peace. You get eternal life. You get success. You get money. You get a ticket to heaven. As if there's a place called heaven where Jesus is not. Jesus is, in your presence is fullness of joy. Whom have I in heaven but thee, said the psalmist. Jesus is a get out of hell free card. Oh, what a, what a diminishing of how glorious Jesus is to call him that. He's a rabbit's foot who keeps bad things from happening to us. We can see Jesus as a solution to our problems. The problem with all of those views is they start with our needs and the story of the gospel does not start with our needs, with our sin, with our need for a savior. And I think a lot of times when we, when we present the gospel, sometimes we start saying, well, because we sinned, Jesus had to die. And the question I would have is, and this is when, yeah, I'm on point three of four, but don't worry, we're gonna speed up here, guys, okay? Hang in there with me. This is point three, when? When did God, when did Christ determine that he would die on the cross? Was it when he was arrested and he figured, I'm gonna to have to roll with this thing now. There's nothing else I can do. Was it when he came to live among us? That'd be the Disney version, wouldn't it? That's the Walt Disney version of the cross. Oh, Father, don't pour your wrath out on them. I've lived with them for three years and I've come to love them. I've seen that there's goodness in them. Is that when Jesus decided the food is good. This is a good place. I want to be with these people, Lord. So will you spare them? Or did he decide it's not working? I'm teaching them everything I can and nobody's really repenting. I'm going to have to go to the cross. Was it in Genesis 3 at the fall of man when God was walking in the garden in the cool of the evening and Adam and Eve were cowering knowing that something terrible had happened to the whole of existence? They were there cowering. Was God saying, Okay, I gotta have come up with a plan quick. This whole thing is unraveling. I need a plan, what am I gonna do? Oh, I got it, I know what to do. That is such a diminishment of the glory and wisdom of a sovereign God. When did God decide that Jesus would go to the cross? Peter preached the first sermon after the cross in Acts chapter two, and he said this. He said, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. Ephesians 1 says, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. 1 Peter 1, 19 says, Christ is a lamb 
without blemish or defect. Oh, wait a minute now, first century readers, we're going back to the Passover again. You know, when I was a little boy, they would say, I remember my dad taking me and we had to go select our lamb for the Passover and we would try to find one. We would choose one that was without blemish or defect. When did God choose Christ? Peter says he's a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the foundation of the world but revealed in these last days for your sake. Through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. When was Christ chosen? In eternity past. This has always been the plan of God. Well, that means that if that's true, that means that God knew that we were going to sin and that he would have to die. And why did he do that? We can't fully answer that. You always gotta be humble. But he did it for his glory. He did it because God is love. And he loved you and me before the world was ever created. Well, but I didn't exist then. Yes, I know, but he's God. And he loved you. Well, why did he create me then? Because he loved you. Because God is love. How? can we get the right vision of this wonderful God who before the foundation of the world loved us and chose to manifest his glory and wisdom and grace and righteousness and holiness through us and in us? How can we get a right vision of Jesus? There's only one way. We have to be on our knees. We have to be on our knees in front of the cross in faith, in submission, in worship, and in love. Hebrews chapter 12 says this, looking to Jesus. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Are we discouraged? We need to look to Jesus. Hebrews 12, the next verse says this, consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Are we tempted? Are we straying? Hebrews again says, because he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. If we're tempted to sin, what a sobering sight the Savior suffering on the cross can be for our hearts. You know, in a sacrificial system, people in the first century, you didn't really need to include all the gore and the horror because they knew it all too well. Do we doubt God's commitment to us? Mm. Are we prideful? Are we shameful? Are we guilty? And I'm gonna include those two things together. Why is that? They're, they're opposites. Aren't, aren't pride and shame opposites? Not really. I think they're just really two sides of the same coin. Self-righteousness, works righteousness. Pride is the flesh having a good day. Shame, the flesh having a bad day. It's all focused on us. When we look at ourselves, we're always going astray. Let me make a confession to you. I spent too much of my Christian life operating out of a form of self-righteousness that was disguised as humility. I was so sorry for my sins. When I, when I sinned against the Lord, I would just repent and repent and feel terrible. And I would use guilt and shame to, to motivate myself. And here's the real question. How is any of that bringing any glory to Jesus Christ? God said, I paid it all for you. Yeah, I know, but I, I, don't, I, I don't, I don't really, I'm not ready to accept that. I paid it all for you. Yeah, but I feel really bad. I paid it all for you. Look at my son and believe in Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. I'm telling you, I mess up my righteousness all the time. 
but I cannot mess up the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Do we doubt God is committed to us? For years, I struggled with this idea of the substitutionary atonement. God the Father is wrathful against humanity, and Jesus says, no, no, Father, I'm going to step in and take their place. And he does, and I receive that, and I believe that, and I'm forgiven of my sins. Praise God, but where does that leave me with God the Father? Is he mad at me when I continue to sin? Is he resentful? He says, I gave my son for you. And the picture that I always had was God the Father is sitting as a judge on the throne, denouncing, not denouncing, but proclaiming a just verdict. You are guilty of sin against a perfectly righteous God and your condemnation is to die in hell forever. And Jesus says, no, Father, I'll pay the price for their sin. And that is perfectly true. But there's one more thing I always left out. God the Father had to say something. Yes, 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 this is what I planned all along. Yes, because I love them. I sent you, son, to do this. And God the Father throws off his robes and he comes down. He's no longer the judge. He's the father and he grabs us in his arms and he loves us and he receives us into his family. Yes, all the promises of God in Christ are yes. There's a few other struggles I had. I'm gonna, I just want to share. Um, at that point, God, I know you got me off and I'm so thankful, but was it a, kind of a technicality like Jesus took my place. The problem is I committed those sins and how does it really work that Jesus paid the price for my sins? It just seems, I'm, I'm just confessing, it seems a little too clever for me sometimes. And then God sent me a wonderful verse, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In a sense, in God's mind, in God's eyes, I did, I have paid the penalty for those sins. I was with Christ. I'm united with Christ. I'm one with Christ. And I died on the cross. But wait, if, if that's true, where does that leave me? Where does that leave you? Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. I'm a new creation. That old man, he did die. He did pay the penalty. And now through the life of Christ in me, I'm a new creation. This is our identity in Christ. And I'm gonna close by talking a little bit about identity. The agonizing question, one of the most agonizing questions of this world is, who am I? Our young people are mutilating their bodies in a desperate attempt to answer the question, who am I? God has resoundingly answered that question when we are in Christ. He's fully satisfied that question. And my identity is not just about me. Because when I kneel before the cross, I'm not alone. I'm gonna close with two images which I haven't covered yet. One is the tender image of Jesus talking to John and his mother. And that's in verses 26 and 27. Jesus is being a good son. He's looking after his mother. Take care of each other. But the only problem with that is Jesus had brothers and sisters. We know this from the, the rest of the Gospels. So shouldn't his brother be taking care of his mother? Shouldn't, you know, you, you hand him over to one of the brothers? But Jesus is redefining what family means on the cross. Now we have some distorted redefinitions of family in our culture. But Jesus is defining 
that a family is the household of God. You now belong to each other. And that transcends family. He said that in Mark chapter three. They said, hey, Jesus, he was preaching a sermon. Hey, your, your mom and your brothers are here to see you. He said, who are my mother and brothers? And pointing at the disciples, he said, these are my mother and brothers because everyone who does the will of God is my brother and sister and my mother. And the last clue in this text that Jesus is changing us into a community. It comes from an unlikely place. It's in verse 34. The location of the spear. You know, I, I never picked up the, the importance of that, but John makes such a big deal about it. He actually breaks the fourth wall. You know, he's been telling the story. John, it was, Jesus did this, and suddenly he says, hey guys, I was there, I'm telling you the truth. I know I'm telling the truth, I saw this. Well, what's the big deal about the location of a spear in his side? Who else had his side opened in the biblical narrative? What other man had his side opened? Oh, Adam. His side was open. He fell into a deep sleep. God opened his side. And what came out? His bride. God created Eve to be the bride of Adam. God opened the side of Jesus. He fell into a deep sleep. It lasted three days also called death. And out of his precious bleeding side came his bride, the church. Jesus created the church in this moment. He changed everything and he made us his family. And so I believe if we want a practical application, we must see Jesus on the cross as we stand there kneeling and we must look around and see him pointing saying, Sister, behold your brother. Brother, behold your sister. And Father in heaven, we call you Father again. I pray that you would open our eyes to the glory of Jesus on the cross. You would open our hearts to respond in faith.